Ophir, just a, an honor to have you. Um, let me add just one more uh, announcement to the, the great ones that Annie just shared with you as well. Um, many of you know uh, Will Kenny and his wife Dana. Will was leading us through our liturgy this morning. Uh, Will and Dana have served faithfully as home meeting leaders for a long stretch uh, for us uh, here at Liberty. And for a while now, Will has also been serving as an elder candidate. We're really excited to announce that this past Monday, we were together in Philadelphia with a couple of the elders from Liberty Church East. Uh, we put our elder candidates through this final exam where we, uh, we test their, their knowledge on uh, the scriptures, theology, pastoral care, and shepherding situations, as well as just have a, a good, honest conversation about how they're doing in their life. Really pleased to say Will passed that with flying colors. Um, so we're going to welcome him and officially ordain him, install him as an elder of Liberty Church in Harrisburg two weeks from today, uh, which is Sunday, December 13th. So that day is the day of the community breakfast. We're going to be here early that morning to eat. Uh, another reason to celebrate that day, we'd invite you to, to make plans to be here if you're not already planning on coming. Uh, we'll be ordaining Will uh, as an elder. He is uh, a faithful servant of our church body and has been for a long time. Uh, so it'll be just a great day for us to commemorate that. Uh, if you uh, are newer to our church, if you want to ask questions, or, or if you've been here a while, I just want to ask questions about the process of that, um, please don't hesitate to do that. You can, can find me after the service or email me. Uh, we'll share a little bit more about the process of that on Sunday the 13th uh, when we ordain him. Uh, but if you have questions in the meantime, don't, ha- don't ever hesitate to, uh, to ask those. So that's coming up soon um, as well. If you have Bibles, go ahead and make your way to uh, the Gospel of Matthew. It's the beginning of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, uh, page 807 is where that'll be. We're going to kick off today a a series that will run us not only through Advent, but also all the way through the spring to Easter. We're going to spend a lot of time together over the next months in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, And today we're going to start, logically so, I suppose, uh, at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to read together today a genealogy. So try to contain your excitement as we read through this genealogy. Now, other than an exercise in pronouncing names that we no longer use in our culture, why are genealogies included in Scripture? I think most of us get to these long lists of names and we're tempted to just skip past them. Right? Be honest. Have you ever been tempted to skip past a genealogy? Some. And some of you are liars. That's okay. But there's, there's a reason, in, especially for us culture, there's a reason they put the credits at the end of the movie, right? No one wants to watch these long lists of names go by. We just want to get to the action. That's our attitude most of the time. But these lists, tedious as they might feel, difficult as they might be to pronounce, are really not tangential to the story. They're not just introductory remarks. They're not just closing credits. They are part of the story, very much so, themselves. So just an analogy for for you to consider this morning. Genealogies in Scripture are like long exposure photographs of God's redemptive work in history. Genealogies are like long exposure photographs of God's redemptive work in history. So full disclosure, unless selfies on an iPhone count, I am not a photographer. And I would would submit to you that doesn't count. So some of you know photography way more than I do. But as I understand this... um, A long exposure photograph is a photo where the shutter on the camera is kept open for an extended period of time. And as a result, the photo actually captures movement. It works particularly well at night, where it captures the movement of light in the midst of the darkness. So perhaps an example of a long exposure photograph that you might be very familiar with, even if you don't know that's what it is, 
are these long exposure photos of rush hour traffic at dusk in like a major urban center. Anyone ever seen one of these long exposure photographs? The buildings, the skyline, it's stationary. So there's this stable, clear picture of the buildings in the backdrop. But then along the roads, all you can see in these photos are these blurry lines of red moving away from you, all the brake lights moving from all the cars moving in one direction, and blurry lines of white coming toward you, all the headlights of the cars moving in the other direction. And I think that's an appropriate illustration for what a genealogy is and what a genealogy does in Scripture. Because a genealogy is like keeping the shutter open on God's work for an extended period of time. And what you're going to see as a result is that there has been a flurry of activity over the years and over the centuries. So much activity that the photo, in the photo itself it shows up blurry. Right? And we'll read this genealogy in name after name, story after story that move in such rapid succession. It, all we can make out often in that is just this blurry line of, of red or white. But what is it that actually makes up that blur? Well, in one of those rush hour photos, think of, think of all of the people and all of the conversations, and all of the the road rage, and all of the joy, and all of the sorrow, and all of the triumph, and all of the tragedy that pass by that camera as the shutter is kept open. And that's just what occurs in a few minutes, or maybe a few hours, for one of those kind of photographs. In Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy here represents nearly 2,000 years. And it starts with Abraham, who lives at least 800 years before King David, and it moves through his family line to King David, and then from King David all the way to Jesus, which is another thousand years. So this is a 2,000-year long exposure photo. If we were to enter into any given moment within that span, we would see the range here of what the human experience actually entails. We would see the suffering, and we would see the sins. And we would see these sweet moments of communion with God that these people had. We would see the richness of the stories of these very real people. These are very real and very flawed people included in this genealogy. And for many of these names, the Bible itself actually has a lot more source material on them. We can go to other places in Scripture and see even more clearly and even more in detail what happened in the lives of these men and these women. But by putting them all together in a genealogy... Matthew accomplishes here something really, really remarkable. In the long exposure perspective, with all that blurry motion going by, there is something that will emerge, like the skyline in those rush hour photos, that's clear and that's stable. And it's the presence and the faithfulness of God. He's been at work. He's been at work, and as these years have rolled on and on, accumulating something that very often to us only looks like a blur, God has been accomplishing his purposes in all of it. So hopefully as we continue to grow in our appreciation of genealogies, let's look together at Matthew chapter 1, the first 17 verses. You can follow along with me as I read, and you can bear with me as I'm sure I will not pronounce all these names uh, correctly. Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, 
and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matthan, and Matthan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word, and thank you for all of your word, including these lists of names, because there's so much of your goodness and your grace and your power wrapped up in the reading of names and generations of people whom you have poured out your favor upon. We pray that we would see that today. Pray that it would give us not only confidence in the work that you've done, but this confident expectation, this hope that we've come together to celebrate today at the Advent wreath. Give us that hope that your future promises will prove true. We pray that in your name. Amen. So this genealogy uh, really does two things, and we'll spend the rest of our time talking about that this morning. It's about promises, and it's about perspective. So this genealogy will remind us of God's promises. It will remind us not only of the promises that were made, but the fulfillment of those promises. And it will also give us perspective. It will give us this long exposure photograph perspective of the work of God in history. So first, this genealogy reminds us of God's promises. Let's talk about that a little bit. There are few verses in Scripture that are as packed with meaning as Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It says here that Jesus is both the son of David and the son of Abraham. And far from being merely a family tree, although, although it is that, what Matthew is saying here right from the get-go, right from the starting gate of his gospel, is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of two massive promises made by God to his people in generations past. And one of them summarized by saying that Jesus is the son of Abraham. The other summarized by saying Jesus is the son of David. So when Matthew says Jesus is the son of Abraham, we have to rewind all the way back to the book of Genesis. And we read there in the book of Genesis that for no specific reason, God sets his affection, sets his favor on this nobody, this this man among the Chaldean people. And he tells him to leave his family to leave his homeland and to go to this country and this place 
that God's going to show him. But as he does that, as he calls him to do that, God makes this covenant promise to Abraham. And it shows up in Genesis chapter 12. God says this, I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So notice that there are no conditions for Abraham to fulfill in that promise that God makes. There's no end that he has to uphold in that. God is just really saying here, Abraham, here's what I'm going to do, and I promise that I'm going to do it. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. And in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. See, when God chooses someone to be the recipient of his blessings, of his favor, it's always with the purpose that that favor, that those blessings won't just terminate on that person. Of course, it's for that person, but it's not only for that person. And so he says here, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, so that through you, through your family, all of these other families on earth will be blessed. We'll keep following the story forward. Abraham's descendants, many of the figureheads of which figure prominently here in in Matthew's list, there's a very varied history of, of embodying that promise. So at many moments in Israel's history, it's really hard to see, like, how in the world is God going to fulfill that promise to bless all the nations of the earth? Each of these eras that's listed by Matthew, Abraham to David, David, David to the Babylonian captivity, and then the Babylonian captivity to Jesus, all of those eras are filled with various years, sometimes many years, of peace and prosperity and thriving, combined with years of warfare and oppression. And it very often seems like the people of God are always back on their heels. They're always more concerned about survival or defending themselves than they are with actually proactively being a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And as the first century A.D. then dawns, as we come all the way to Jesus at the end of this genealogy, there's still this huge divide between Jewish people and non-Jewish people, Jew and Gentile. It shows up all over the New Testament. So what's the answer going to be? How is God going to fulfill this promise to Abraham to bless not just this one family of Abraham, but all families of the earth? Well, there are these hints along the way, which is a big reason, and perhaps you notice this as we read the genealogy. There are four women who figure very prominently in the genealogy of Jesus. And all four of these women are non-Israelite women. So Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. They were residents of the land that God promised to Abraham, but that the people of Israel had to dispel violently from that land. Ruth was a Moabite. Bathsheba, who's listed here as the wife of Uriah, was married to Uriah, who is a Hittite. It's another tribe from Canaan. And in fact, the reason that she's probably called the wife of Uriah and not Bathsheba here is probably Matthew reminding his readers of the inclusion of non-Israelite people in the history of God's work of redemption. There were hints along the way. But all of that varied history builds to Jesus. And Jesus, Matthew says here, is the son of Abraham. He's born in this family line of Abraham, but who then, as a member of that one particular family, opens the way to God for all families. Because of Jesus, and we read more and more of this as Matthew will trace this through his gospel, because of Jesus, being included among God's people is no longer about what family you're born into or what nation state you're part of. It's about who you place your faith in, who you put your trust in. 
It's not about what you're able to do and the kinds of laws of your nation that you're able to keep or not keep. It's about the work that Jesus has done. So the Apostle Paul will then reflect on truths like this and say, because of Jesus there is now neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And God's blessing is open to all nations, to all families through Jesus. As I mentioned, we're going to be in Matthew for for the next several months. As we get to the end of it, you're going to see how Matthew actually bookends his gospel with this. He closes out the gospel with Jesus giving this commission, saying, go and make disciples of all nations of the earth. And so there's this really cool bookend effect where Matthew starts his gospel by saying, here's Jesus, son of Abraham, the one who is going to actually fulfill that promise to, to Abraham to bless all nations of the earth. And it's going to close with Jesus sending his followers to go do that, to go be the hands and feet to bless all peoples of the earth. But Jesus isn't just the son of Abraham. He's also the son of David. And when we hear that in this gospel, that's meant to remind us of another promise that God made to his people, and specifically to one person who's described in Scripture as a man after God's heart, King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes this promise to David. He says this, When your days are fulfilled... And you lie down with your fathers. In other words, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God promises David there that he will always have one of his descendants on the throne. And again, it's really hard to see, as the history of the people of God plays out, how this is going to be possible. Even in what Matthew includes here, in this genealogy, you've got David, you've got his son Solomon, okay, so far so good, and then after Solomon, Rehoboam, the kingdom divides. And there's Israel in the north, and there's Judah in the south, and then tracing that divided kingdom, both of those kingdoms end up being conquered and exiled by foreign nations at some point in their history. The southern kingdom, Judah, is exiled to Babylon. And though we're still able to, to trace the line of kings as, as a part of like an ancestral heritage or lineage, those kings never have the same kind of power, never have the same kind of influence that David and Solomon had all those years before. And trace that all the way forward to the first century, and the people of God are still very much a subjected people under the rule of, of the Roman Empire. So it looks like here, like there's no way for God's promise to be fulfilled until, until Jesus comes. And Jesus comes, and we'll read this as we continue through the gospel, he comes to establish a new kingdom. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And what he says there, there's something that's more powerful, there's something that's more important than merely a physical throne, a physical kingdom. And we'll see in Matthew's Gospel particularly, but also in other places in Scripture, Jesus really is a better David. He's a better king, and he's a better king over a better kingdom. And so Jesus, therefore, is the fulfillment of God's promise that the throne of David would always would be established forever. There would always be a descendant of David on the throne. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, chapter 1, The Apostle Paul says a really profound line. He says this. He says, All the promises of God find their yes 
in Jesus. And what he's saying there is that all the fulfillment of all the promises that God has ever made, they come to their fruition through the work of Jesus. And we see a glimpse of that here illustrated in Matthew chapter 1. As we trace that out through Jesus' life and his ministry in the coming weeks, we're going to see that Jesus entering into human history and living the perfect life that you and I could not live, dying the death that we deserve to die to save us from our sin, rising from the dead, all of that work of Jesus means that God will make good on his promises. Jesus is the son of Abraham, so we can have confidence. Truly, God will bless all nations of the earth through this family. And Jesus is the son of David. Truly, God will never lack a man after his own heart on the throne. So here in these relatively few verses, 17 verses, are 2,000 years of demonstrated faithfulness of God. 2,000 years. So even in those moments, if you were to zoom in and to see any given moment here, it would look perhaps like God couldn't possibly make good on his promises. But we see, pulling back the whole picture of this, that God will indeed uphold every last word of his promises. So genealogy reminds us of promises. Second, the genealogy gives us perspective. It's the long exposure photo of God's work throughout history. If you're honest, uh, doesn't your life often feel like those blurry lines of red and white in those rush hour photos? Doesn't your life feel like that? Like probably even this week. We celebrated Thanksgiving together. I got to hear a couple stories already. Many of you had great Thanksgiving with family and friends. As we celebrated Thanksgiving, probably many of you even this week remembered to a holiday gone by or were maybe spending time with people that you hadn't seen in a while. And at one point in time during the week, you had this thought, like, man, that feels like forever ago. That felt like that was forever ago that we did that, or it's been forever since I've seen you. Okay, that's true, because life moves really fast. And every day there's new stuff happening, and it just seems to compound over and over again. And that pace, combined with our limitedness, the fact that we're finite as human beings, that means that we are constantly prone to misinterpret and to misunderstand our circumstances. So we have this desperate and ongoing need for perspective. We need perspective. There's an author named Paul Miller says it this way, and I love this. He says, We experience life as if we are walking backward. The future is completely unknown. We see the present through our peripheral vision, through a kind of fog. Only the past has some clarity, and that clarity increases with time. So you follow with his image? We walk through life backward. We have no idea what's coming. We can see the present through our peripheral, but it's kind of foggy, kind of blurry. And only what's happened already in the past can we see with any kind of clarity. That clarity increases over time. I think that's a really helpful image. Well, beginning, in the beginning of his gospel here, Matthew gives us really a, a condensed version of 2,000 years of the past. And as fast as these names go by, the cumulative history represented by these names gives us some clarity. It gives us some clarity from the past. It gives us perspective from the past. So we've got these three sets of 14 generations. 14 from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, 14 more from the Babylonian exile to Jesus. And it's not literally that clean of a breakdown. Okay, there's some gaps that show up in, these, in the breakdown of these generations. And so, 
Some skeptics will point to passages of Scripture like this and say, you can't rely on the Bible as history. I mean, look at passages like Matthew chapter 1. There's all kinds of holes in it. It has glaring inconsistencies. But here's the thing. The omissions here in Matthew chapter 1 are too obvious to be a mistake. They're too obvious to be like a blatant error or an intentional, or, or, or an error, I should say. Matthew references Old Testament source material more than any other gospel writer. He's got all kinds of Old Testament quotes infused in his gospel. He has access to these same lists of generations in the Old Testament that we have today that we're making those comparisons by. And he writes this genealogy assuming that his readers have a ton of background knowledge in Old Testament history. So what he's doing here as an editor and as a writer, he's being selective and he's aiming for something more than just a perfect family tree that, that, that doesn't have any gaps at all. He's got to have a different aim. Now, what is that? What's Matthew's aim as he omits some here very obviously? Well, we don't know. He doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us. But it's certainly not to edit out the embarrassing stuff. It's certainly not that. There's a list. This is a list of murderers and a list of cowards and a list of blockbuster sexual sins. Tamar seduced her father-in-law. And Rahab was a prostitute. And Abraham sold his, prostituted his wife out not once but twice. He had blockbuster sexual sins. Wicked kings. If you look at 2, Corinthians, 2 Kings 21 and read about Manasseh. Read about how wicked that guy was. He's included here in this list. So if Matthew was trying to clean up Jesus' family line to make it look pretty and pure, he did a terrible job of that. There are different theories. There are different theories for why these, these three sets of 14 generations. Um, one of the most compelling, I think there could be some real truth to this, is that three sets of 14, another way to look at that, is also six sets of seven. There have been six sets of seven generations that have gone by here. And so Jesus entering into human history begins the seventh seven. The seventh seven. And there's all kinds of Old Testament symbolism to that. Specifically where after a period of Seven, seven periods of seven years, there was something called the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament. And the year of Jubilee was a year of rest for the people of God. It was a year of freedom for prisoners and slaves. They went free. It was a year of debts being forgiven. It was a year characterized by the mercy, the abundant riches of God's mercy. All of those things have very explicit connections to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. See, it's Jesus and we'll read this in Matthew's Gospel too. It's Jesus who gives rest to the weary and the heavy laden. It's Jesus who comes preaching good news to the poor and liberty to the slaves, to the captives. He comes forgiving debt. He forgives our trespass so that we might not have our sins counted against us. He comes as the agent of God's mercy so that God might simultaneously be just, He might uphold His justice, but also at the same time, be the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. So whether or not Matthew's making like an overt, direct connection to Jesus and the year of Jubilee, we don't know. But Matthew is very clear about one thing. Jesus brings a new beginning. Jesus brings a new beginning. His arrival is very much part of the same work that God has been doing since creation. That's why he shows up at the end of this genealogy. But it's a distinctively new era in the history of that redemptive work. So the question for you and I then is this. 
if through all of that blur of what these 2,000 years actually felt like as they were experienced by the people of God, if through all of that, God was weaving together His work in a way that built to the arrival of Jesus, then can't God be trusted to weave together the details of our generation and of our lives into that same redemptive work that He's doing? What we see here in a genealogy like this is that God is faithful. God is faithful. So we take this then huge accumulated record of God's sovereign power and the clarity with which we get to see it as we look at it in the past, and then we project that forward. We project that forward through this new beginning in Jesus. That's what you and I get to be caught up in. And we miss that very often. We, we think of our lives only in terms of the present or maybe our recent past. We don't think of ourselves being caught up in this huge work of God that spans creation to consummation. But that's the work that we're caught up in. And here's the other thing. Not all of the promises of God are fully realized as of yet. There's another promise that God made through Jesus, right? Before Jesus goes to the cross, before his death, resurrection, and then ascension back to the Father, Jesus promises his, his people, his followers, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And that really is what we're celebrating as much as anything together during the Advent season. Of course, we're, we're looking back where we're remembering the first coming of Jesus into human history. But also, we're, we're anticipating in this season that there will be a second coming of Jesus. His first coming and all the fulfillment that brought, that's what gives us confident expectation. That's what gives us this hope that we celebrate at the Advent wreath today. That Jesus will indeed come again. That we, He will complete the work that He has started through this new beginning. Now, I don't know what, what exactly your mindset is as you come into the Advent season this year. I don't know how overwhelmed with joy and expectation you are. I don't know how overwhelmed with sorrow or shame that you've been in this season. I do know that all of us will have many moments of both of those things, of all of those things in the days and years ahead in our lives. So in light of this promise-keeping faithfulness of God, I'm going to invite you to, to do this. I'm going to invite you to shape your perspective with two truths. Shape your perspective with these two truths. That every moment is significant, but that any one moment is not ultimate. Every moment is significant, but any one moment is not ultimate. See, every moment of your life, doesn't matter what it is, doesn't matter what it feels like right now, every moment is significant. How much of the grace of God is present in any one cross-section millisecond of our lives. Right? Like even you and I being here together in the same room this morning, how much of God's abundant grace has He poured out in history and in the story of each one of our lives to bring us together to this time and place today? We would take decades to share all of those moments and those stories of God's grace if we were to take the time to do that. Genealogies are great reminders of that, right? How much of God's grace is present here in this list of names that spans 2,000 years? So like this, when we look back on a genealogy, someday, with the vantage point and clarity of looking back on our own lives, we'll see that there were no throwaway moments 
in every single one of our lives. There was no throwaway moment. There's no throwaway moments. Every moment has significance in your life. But at the same time, any one of those moments is not ultimate. I think it's, I think it's unavoidable to spend time thinking about the present, right? The present is, is our current reality, so it makes sense that we're going to spend some time thinking about that. That's not wrong. What's wrong is when our immediate circumstances, when our present becomes consuming, and when we begin to view our present as ultimate. Right? But these moments that we find ourselves in, be they good, bad, ugly, or anywhere else in between, they're not ultimate. Right? It's God's promises that are ultimate. It's God and His promises that emerge as stable and clear, like the, sky, like the skyline in these long exposure photographs. They're the, God and His promises are the ones that emerge clear. And right now, you may be able to grasp some of what God is doing in your life and through your circumstances. Often I think we're guilty of rushing the explanation. I think we rush the explanation in that. So we claim to know exactly what God's trying to accomplish in our lives at this given moment. Like, that's why I got sick. It led to that, which led to that. Or that's why I'm suffering in this way. That's why God provided this way or did not provide this way. And there's probably truth in that. Probably a lot of truth in that in many cases. But the danger is that we put this nice little neat conclusion on the work of God and we fail to recognize that all we can see in any one given moment is just a fraction of the work that God is doing. And the unintended consequence that comes from that is that we reduce the work of God to something that we can fully and completely understand in the present, in real time. And we can't. And to do that is to reduce God to our limitedness. And I I think you would agree with me, I don't want a God who's like me. I don't want a God who's limited like I am. But because every moment is significant, and also at the same time, no one moment is ultimate, that makes us free. That makes us free to actually rest in the faithfulness of God rather than being preoccupied and consumed by our present-day circumstances. To rest in the faithfulness of God, on the one hand, protects us from being consumed by despair and by suffering. When things are bad, resting in the faithfulness of God protects us from being consumed by that. On the other hand, resting in the faithfulness of God protects us from being consumed with circumstantial happiness or a false sense of arrival. Like, thank God we're we're past all of the bad stuff. We're now arrived and nothing bad will ever happen again. Over here, in the suffering... Right? God help us if this is all that life entails. Like, How long can we possibly endure? But over here, God help us if this is as good as it gets. Like We settle for far less often than we are intended to experience in the kingdom of God. So today, and not only today, but this whole Advent season, may these fulfilled promises of God through history give us perspective for our own lives. And may this first coming of Jesus that we will celebrate and celebrate well together in the weeks ahead, may that solidify our confident hope, our expectation that he's coming again. And in the midst of the varied circumstances of our lives, wherever you find yourself today, may we really see God for who he is. He is faithful. He is consistent. He is the stable one. And his purposes will prove true in time. His promises will come to fruition. 
And in the end, the blur of all of our lives will give way to the clarity of the faithfulness of God. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you that, that our lives are not the only grid through which we have to interpret you and your work. We would be, we would be ships without anchors if that were the case. We would be tossed around by whatever our circumstances entailed in any given moment. And we're grateful to you by looking at 2,000 years of your demonstrated faithfulness. And even for us, reflecting on another 2,000 years since Jesus is coming. We're grateful that we get to use that as our grid to recognize you are faithful and you are able and you are good and your promises are true. Pray that we would cling to you in faith this season. I pray that our joys would be sweeter because they are rooted in you and not circumstantial happiness. Pray that our sorrows would be bearable because you have entered into our sin to bear our grief and our burden and our sorrows. Unite us with Jesus. We are united by faith with Jesus. Unite us in our experience. Help us to understand and to grasp that and to live that out in our day-to-day lives this Advent season. And even as we come to this table, recognizing that we need to feast on you continually for 